You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, if you have a Bible... Tonight we start a short series. I don't want to call it a mini-series because that sounds like a soap opera, and that's weird. So I, we, just a short series on who is Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, turn to the New Testament. Um, if you are advanced in your Bible-flipping skills, um, turn to John 1, Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4. If you're advanced, if that kind of blows your mind, just turn to the New Testament. Or if you have a Bible app on your phone, you're just, you're kind of stuck. You can't do that on that phone. Um, this is one of my favorite times of the year because as we've been in Genesis, we get to stop and just focus on the Gospels. And I love teaching, expositing, spending time um, teaching Jesus. Now, as you guys know, we always end up there at the end because we think that every story in Scripture finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And we try to do that as we go through the Bible to show you that at the end and give us a point of worship in response to God. But it's, it's my pleasure. I love to teach just on, on Jesus. So this is what, what, what the next three weeks are going to look like. Today we're going to talk about um, the, 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 the message of Jesus. What was the central teaching of Jesus? What was the main message of Christ? And so we're going to talk about that tonight. Um, and then tomorrow or next week, we're going to look at why is the cross cross of Christ so central? Why is the symbol of the cross central in Christianity? Why does every church talk about the cross? Why does almost every church, except for this one, have like a cross up above the pulpit or somewhere in, on the front? Why is the cross, why, well, why the centrality of the cross in Christianity and in the Christian faith? And so next week we're going to look at the centrality of the cross of Jesus. And then on Easter Sunday we're going to talk about the risen Christ, the resurrection of Christ. What does it mean that Christ was risen from the dead? What implications does that have on the world and us, and us personally and us locally? So it's going to be a fun series tonight, his message next week, his death, and then his resurrection. So um, Mark chapter 1, um, actually just turn to the New Testament. We're going to be going through this. I'm going to pray, ask God for strength this evening, clarity of mind and for me and you. And then um, I'll read some of these passages as we get started. So let me pray. God, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for this night, a night that you have um, set aside, ordained from the foundations of the world that the people that would be in this room are here, hearing this. And they might not even believe that, God, but you designed it this way. And I pray that you would give us ears of faith, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you want to teach us tonight, that if maybe Christ in our mind is a bit fuzzy, if um, who you are in our minds is just, in your message is a bit hazy, that Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, would you breathe clarity on this, on this church tonight? May we see tonight with the eyes of faith. Would you please give us eyes to see? And I pray that you would anoint me. I need your help tonight to get through um, and to, to preach the things that you want me to say and, uh, and I know that I can, I can speak to people's ears. I might even be able to give people a little bit of knowledge, maybe. But only you could change a life. Only you, God, could take the, no- the knowledge and the stuff and apply it to people's heart so where they know that just that's something that burns inside them. They know that you are the truth. And I could argue for days and persuade for days and years, but 
You just have to speak. You have to call people. We pray that you would tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So what was the main message of Jesus? If I was to ask that question to you, maybe if you've thought about that question, if you are new tonight or you're just new to the Christian faith or to church in general, you've probably asked yourself this question. What is Jesus' main gig? What was his teaching? What was his main set of teachings? What was he really about? Or maybe you grew up in church, and if you did grow up in church, you still might have some difficulty nailing down the one central message of Jesus. Some might say that it was love one another. That's what Jesus' central message is, and it is, it is a great message. Love one another. That's what Jesus preached everywhere he went. Love each other. And that is a great message, and Jesus did preach that. But what it, was it central to his teaching? Someone else might say, well, it was love your enemies, Jesus was teaching that we are to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to bless those who persecute you. Now, yes, that was a teaching of Jesus, but was it central to his life and ministry? Another one that we might come up with is grace and forgiveness. Jesus has come to bring the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, and that is the central message. That is the central teaching of Jesus. Or maybe it's don't judge, judge not. That's what Jesus came. You know, we should be tolerant. We should love each other. We shouldn't judge one another. Was that the main message of Jesus? Now, all of these parts encompass what Jesus said. They're all made up. Jesus has said all of these things, and he taught all of these things. But what was his main message? What was he trying to get across when he's teaching us to love one another, when he's teaching us to love our enemies, when he's teaching grace and displaying forgiveness and saying don't judge? What was the main message that that was driving all of these other teachings? What was his main teaching? Well, I want to start, and I think it's very helpful to understand or to get to start to understand the, the main teaching or the central message of Jesus. Let's just start where he started. Let's just start where the gospel writer started with his ministry. And, and, and his main teaching might, might become a little bit more clear. And so let's start with John because we ended there last week when we talked about Abraham and Isaac. And we ended in John chapter 1 verse 29. And I think it's um, nice for continuity's sake to start there. So John the Baptist gets on the scene. He starts to um, preach um, repentance. Now, John the Baptist, if you've ever seen his description of who he was, he was this weird dude that wore camel's hair, a leather belt, ate locusts and honey. And he was down by a river yelling at everyone. Now, and, and, and when, you, when you're reading the gospel, he's just a, a funny figure to find in the New Testament. You expect him to be maybe in the Old Testament, not necessarily in the New Testament. Well, the, the reason why he's there, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry is that he, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, a prophet of God, is sent to bridge the gap between the old and the new. He's like this old-fashioned sort of preacher brought into the New Testament to herald the coming Christ. And so he's preaching, and he's, and he's telling everybody to repent, and he's talking about, hey, there's another guy that's coming after me who I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. Well, I actually said, you know, tie a sandal strap, but whatever. You know, I'm, not, I'm not worthy to bow down. There's a, I baptize you with water. There is one coming who is going to baptize you with spirit and with fire. His message, you follow. So this John the Baptist, this crazy guy with, that wore camel hair and leather belt, really cool fashion, forward guy. Um, he, uh, he sees Jesus walking up one day. And John has some disciples himself. 
And so Jesus comes up, and I kind of imagine it, Jesus coming over the horizon, and you can see the silhouette of Christ, but then when he becomes clear, and John the Baptist knows that it is, in fact, Jesus, he says this, and it says on John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God, that's a very Old Testament description of who Jesus is. The Lamb of God. The one who, as we looked at in Genesis 22 last week, when Isaac and, and Abraham were going up the mountain and Isaac had the, the, the knife and the fire and, and little Isaac, well, the boy Isaac was holding the wood and he's like, Dad, um, I have the wood and you have a knife and fire. Where's the sacrifice? If we're going on this mountain to worship the Lord and to sacrifice to God, where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And what Abraham said, say to, say to his son, son, God will provide for himself the lamb. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. Not all of a sudden. It's actually a lot of years later. Anyway, <laughs> Jesus shows up, and John the Baptist goes, there he is. Look, the lamb of God, the one who is going to take away the sins of the world, the true substitute. And then Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. When he heard that John had been arrested. Now, John, the same John, John the Baptist, was arrested for preaching preaching against the religious leaders, preaching against some very powerful people. He was thrown into, into, into prison, and later he would be beheaded. And now when he had heard that John was arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. It's very important that you know the geographical location of where Jesus wandered because Matthew is about to tie it to Isaiah chapter 9, a prophecy. And then he quotes Isaiah 9. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is in the Old Testament. And it says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow and the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. What Matthew is saying is that finally the Messiah has come. The people who dwell in the dark land, the light has shown up. Those who dwell in the shadow of death, light, death, light has dawned on them. And then it says this. From that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He started his his ministry in every single gospel like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Same thing. Are you starting to get maybe a little bit of clarity of what maybe Jesus' main teaching was about? Luke chapter 4. This is one of my favorite Luke records in really good detail a little bit of drama that Jesus draws out here. I love the drama of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Jesus kind of draws it out. Luke does a really good job recording this. Let me, let me read it to you if you can get this in your, in your mind's eye. Um, I sometimes laugh out loud when I read this section because it's so awesome. And he came to Nazareth, Jesus. That's where Jesus grew up. And it says where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, meaning he did this every single Sabbath, every single Saturday, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. That, was, that meant because he was a rabbi, he was, able, um, he was able to get up and read the text. And what they would do is kind of what we would do on a Sunday morning, read a text and expound on it. 
So if we were in Genesis, we kind of go through Genesis. They had a reading that they went through. And every Sabbath was a reading that they were to read, a liturgy that they were to read. And the rabbi would read it, and then he would teach a short teaching on it. Kind of like I'm doing right now. It's the same sort of thing that happened there. And so the, the synagogue attendant handed Jesus the daily reading, the reading that they were supposed to read that day, the liturgy for that day, and it happened to be, happened, in quotes, air quotes, happened to be Isaiah 61. I was this custom, went to the synagogue, and he stood up to read, and on the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 61. He reads this. This is the, the temple reading that day, or, or synagogue reading that day. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was the text. So now it says, and he rolled up the scroll. I love this. Like, I kind of read this like, and he rolled up the scroll. Jesus is like, rolls it up, hands it back, and he has it back and he sat down. Okay, now I stand up to teach, you sit down to listen. Back then it was the exact opposite. They'd stand up to, to listen, and the teacher, when he was ready to teach, he would sit down, and everybody was like, what is he going to say? This is going to be really good. So Jesus gets up, and he reads the text, and he sits down, and then Luke says, and everybody's eyes were fixed on him. They're wondering like this, okay, give us a really good sermon, maybe three points on how this is applicable to our lives, three points about how God's going to do this. So Jesus sits down there, everyone's eyes were fixed on him, and he said this, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thank you, God bless, I'll be here all week. (laughs) That's what he said. I mean, he sits down, and they're like, what what does the text mean? Exposit, expound on this text. What does it mean for us? And Jesus is like, okay, let me tell you what it means. It means this. I am this. This is me. This is talking about me. Today, this scripture, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. It's fulfilled. Done. They were, their minds were blown. They're like, you, wait, wait, you can't say that. You can't just throw that out there. You can't just claim to be the fulfillment of, all, of scripture. You can't do that. And they had all these questions, and they ultimately rejected him. So Jesus goes to the next town. And then he did these great miracles, and they loved him. And it says, on that day, just a couple verses later, and, then on, and, and when it was day, he departed and went to a, into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, same thing. This is the beginning of his ministry. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, it's very important when you get to the New Testament to realize that when you get to the New Testament and you get to Jesus in the New Testament, it's not a new story. I know that you read the New Testament as if it's new and the old is old. Throw out the old, stick with the new. It makes way more sense. That's not the case. Maybe... If you've asked somebody, where do I start in the Bible? Everyone always says, John, right? Everyone says that. Start with the new. And we have this idea that the old is old and the new is new and the new is better. But listen, the writers are not telling a new story in the New Testament. The purpose of the New Testament is to reveal God's continuation and conclusion to the story that started in the beginning, Now, if you didn't catch that, that was a reference to Genesis. 
Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like any good story, God starts his story once upon a time. And the New Testament is a continuation and a conclusion to that story. So if you don't have a working knowledge of the Old Testament, it's really hard to pick up the nuances of the New Testament. So when Jesus breaks out in the scene and goes, behold, time is at hand. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's right here. Repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus says that over and over and over again, it's hard for our ears to go, what is he saying? We can kind of skip over that and go, well, he was talking about love. And Jesus talks about reconciliation. Actually, the central message of Jesus was this. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is breaking into human time and space right now and making every wrong right. It's starting to undo the curse. Everything that you see Jesus doing is almost as if he's restoring everything back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so Jesus says, it's happening. The time of God breaking in, setting all wrongs right, is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This, I think, I believe, is the central message of Jesus. If you start to get the kingdom of God, you'll start to understand the parables. Have you ever read the parables? And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. Why? What, is, what are the beatitudes? How to live in the kingdom of God. What is every single miracle? The breaking in, the setting right, God's kingdom breaking in. This is what Jesus was doing. If we think that Jesus' message is just some kind of myopic sort of, it's about love, well, it's about him, and, 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 it's, and, and about me, it's about me, and I'm, I'm, like, I'm like in sin, and he's coming, it's bigger than all of that. Jesus is bringing in the reign of God. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God. And if you don't understand this, I say this because we can miss the central message of Jesus if we don't understand that this story in the New Testament is a continuation of an even older story. We miss that. This last summer, I really, really wanted to watch the final conclusion to the Harry Potter series. And the only reason why I wanted to watch it was because I didn't, I didn't see any of them. Well, actually, I saw the first one, kind of. That was a very long time ago. It was like 15 years ago or something like that. But I wanted to see the end because I wanted to tell my kids, yeah, I went to the premiere. Like, like Harry Potter, oh my God, it's like Star Wars. Today. Did you see it in a the theater? Like, yeah, I saw it in the theater. Well, I mean, I didn't see it in the theater, but maybe someone else did. I want to say that to my kids. Yeah, I saw that. Oh, yeah, I saw it in the theaters. I wanted to say that, so I, I wanted to go. So I went, and I was so confused. I didn't know anything. I, I, the part, you know, there's part one, Deathly Hallows, part one, part two. So I go to part one, and I leave, and I call my friend Tim, who's like this nerd, and um, he knows all about these movies. And I'm like, who, what's going on? Why is this, is, is, is Snape good or bad? I'm like, really confused on this character. Like, he's like, well, he's, he's good and, and bad. Well, he, he had something with Harry's mom. I'm like, whoa, wait, what happened? He's like, no, no, you'll understand at the end. It's just like this long story. I'm like, I was so behind because I came in at the end. And I had no context, no nuances of all the characters, character development, what was happening, who liked who, who was dating. I was so confused. Now, when we go to the New Testament, it's kind of like that. Like, kingdom of God, what is that? Sounds like I put on, like, armor or something, and I'm, like, fighting with, like, jousts and horses. How, what does the kingdom of God even mean? You have to have some working Old Testament understanding. So I'm like, what is Jesus saying? I think 
when he's saying this, and every single gospel as he starts, this is central to what he's doing. Now, in order for us to look at that, let's look at Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And I, I love the way Mark puts this. He's, Mark has this wonderful gift of brevity. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel, gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. These are the first spoken, spoken words of Jesus in Mark's gospel. The scene arises right after his famous conflict with Satan. I, 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 again, I love Mark's brevity because what, what Mark does is this. It, Mark's gospel jumps right into action. And Mark introduces Jesus really fast and it says Jesus was baptized and then Jesus was driven into the wilderness where he was with wild beasts and he was tempted. Now we know that he was tempted by Satan because Matthew expounds on it. Matthew has that wonderful, beautiful thing where Satan tempted him three different times and Jesus turned to the word of God three different times. But Mark doesn't say any of that. Mark says this, Jesus was tempted and then he was driven into the wilderness or Jesus was baptized, driven into the wilderness and then he was tested. He was with the wild beasts and he was tested. And the reader goes, well, did he win or not? And then the very next verse is, and then Jesus emerged saying, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Who won? Jesus won. Mark just wants you to kind of like pick it out for yourself. Like, well, who won that battle? And then Jesus emerges like, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus emerges literally emerges uh, victorious and he announces the kingdom of God. Now, what did Jesus mean by this? What did Jesus mean by saying the kingdom of God? What does that expression mean? I think we have to grasp this. Here's the kingdom of God defined. Here's the kingdom defined. The kingdom of God is an expression that embodied the hopes of the Jewish people, that God would one day remove all evil from the world and inaugurate a new, unprecedented age of blessing, prosperity, and joy. That's what the kingdom of God was. It was this, it was this old Hebraic hope. It was a Jewish hope. It was this hope that God would restore everything back to the way it was. Everything. That God would bring about shalom, that God would bring about this ancient promise of peace of God coming to earth. This was not escapism. Christianity is very, very good talking about escapism, talking about like, let's, in order to get peace, we have to leave this world. The kingdom of God is, no, actually, it's on earth as it is in heaven. It comes here. And this wasn't triumphalism where the people of God triumph over the rulers of the day. This was actually a very God-centered view where God sets all wrongs Right? And for this to happen, they had a hope that the whole world would be under the rule of God, under, under the domain of God. This was the hope of the kingdom of God. It was both spatial and spiritual. It was spatial and spiritual. It had flesh and bone context, and it had this spiritual sort of context. The hope of the kingdom of God was, both, was first spatial. This is what they believed. They believed that the world would not know poverty or hunger. There was a day coming. When God would set all wrongs right and no one would be hungry and no one would be in poverty, it would be this economic shalom. That's what they believed. They believed that, the people of God believed that the oppressive governments would be brought down. Every single tyrannical dictator, every single oppressive government, every single person who leads his country into genocide, every single one of them would be stamped out and God would rule and righteousness would flow down like, like a river. Righteousness would flow down from the kingdom of God. It was political. Not only that, it was environmental. 
The world would not know famine or deprivation, and all animals would get along. They believed, Isaiah, um, I believe this is Isaiah 11, they believed that all animals would get along, that a lamb and a lion would lie down together, and the lion wouldn't like chomp on the lamb, that a kid, a baby, just wean, could play in a, by a cobra's den and play with cobras. I think that's as much protective of a cobra than it is for the kid. Because you know how kids like grab animals and like yank them apart? Like these got cat and like cat and like ears off and like, like kids like to do that. I think it's, well, what this means is that the kid won't attack the cobra and the cobra won't attack the kid. They'll be at peace with one another. There's this environmental peace that we know in our environment in the animal kingdom between man and beast and beast and beast, everybody will get along. So it was, it was spatial. They believed that God, when his shalom came, it was a spatial peace. But not just that, it was spiritual. The power of sin would be destroyed. Evil and the evil one would be demolished. They believed that God would crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3. That evil would be stamped out. That all people would worship God. This is the positive. All people would worship God. That God would have his throne and everyone would live with the knowledge of the Lord. Simply put, the kingdom of God was the rule of God where God became the rightful ruling king of the world. And what did Jesus do when he started his ministry? You need to understand this. This is very important. Jesus proclaimed this. Jesus announced this. When Jesus began his ministry, he announced, in a day before mass media and social media, where there were heralds that would, would stand and have all these, these guards and these legions around them, and they announced news, and they would go to provinces, and they would go to cities and towns across the whole empire, and they, with a message that carries weight, that carried authority, and, and, and a sense that this isn't a new idea you might want to think about, but this was a fact that you better get used to. So they would go into a town and say this, fact, a new Caesar is Lord, and his name is, deal with it. If there's an uprising, we have, I have men here that will kill you. Just deal with that fact. We won the war, or we lost the war. or they, Heralds would go and go, this is truth. You can't, you can't like argue back. This is fact. This is truth. So when Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is at hand, he's not introducing a new idea. He's stating a fact. He's saying this. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here and now. It's breaking in. And if you don't believe me, watch and see. If you don't believe that, this, that I am the king, the king is among you, watch and see. This, see, this isn't Jesus meek and mild. This is the, a proclamation that the time of waiting for God's promised interve- intervention is over. It is here in himself. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. God has come near. This is something that Israel had been waiting for for generations, that God, the true and righteous king, would break into their context, into their reality, and into their world and be a true and present king. That, that the power, the sovereignty, and the rule of God would break into humanity and right every wrong and subdue every single enemy. And what Jesus did is that Jesus came differently because he is not presented merely as one who brings the Father's message the way that Muhammad is presented in Islam as the final prophet who brings Allah's message. Rather, Jesus is the message. He is the word as well as the one bringing the message. He is the message and the one bringing the message. So here's the main message of Jesus, the central teaching of Jesus and what he was saying. 
the kingdom of God is near you because I am near you. The kingdom of God is at hand because I am at hand. The king is in your midst. That's what Jesus was announcing. The kingdom of God has come near and is present because the promise in breaking of God has always been far off, but in Christ it is brought near. Now, if you don't believe what I'm saying, just read the gospels. Just read them for yourself. I suggest that you start with Mark because, number one, it's the shortest gospel, and it's the best one for anyone who has ADD. I love the gospel of Mark. Mark doesn't like he, you know, you read the other, other gospels, God bless them, they're awesome, I love them, but Mark just like gets right in with the action. The other ones kind of start kind of big with genealogy and stuff, and you're like, what is going on? But Mark's like, Jesus, and then a demon, immediately. You're like, okay, I like this gospel. Like Jesus preaching, and then a man who is a demoniac stands up and engaging, and there's a leper, and it's just rapid fire succession showing what this inbreaking kingdom of God looks like. So Jesus starts in a synagogue preaching, and this man stands up who is demonized, a demoniac, a man who was oppressed by demons. And he stands up and he starts to yell at Jesus. And this is what he yells. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? The answer is absolutely yes. Jesus is like, actually, that's exactly why I came. It's nice to meet you. And he says to the demon, shut up, come out of the man. The demon leaves and the man sits down in the right state of mind. And everybody's like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. This is some crazy teaching. This is teaching with authority. This is teaching where this guy doesn't just talk about the Bible. He like points and it's real. The answer is yes. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the evil one. Jesus has come to crush the serpent's head. Why? Because the inbreaking kingdom of God looks like the promise to restore righteousness and destroy evil. Guys, can I just say that this happens today? I've seen people been free from evil oppression, even things that are demonic. The inbreaking kingdom of God means today that God does this today. He frees people from torment. He frees people from oppression. He frees people. He frees. He fr- Jesus proclaims the gospel. Jesus shows up and Satan and demons run. And that's exactly what happened. The inbreaking kingdom of God means he's setting all things right, meaning even evil, even demonic powers. And then right after that, just a couple verses later, verse 40, Jesus meets a leper. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. See, leprosy was a disease that was so nasty it had around it all this superstition and fear. Lepers in the time of Jesus were like zombies, no joke. Lepers at the time of Jesus were called by rabbis the living dead. And to heal a leper was as hard as raising the dead. And leprosy was contagious, kind of like zombies are. (laughs) Leprosy was contagious, so it was horrible not only just to look at a leper because of skin disease and stuff, but it wasn't just skin disease. It went all the way down to the bone, all the way down to the nervous system, to where it shut down the nervous system where you wouldn't have any feeling. 
And there were lepers that would not just have this horrible skin disease, but they would actually be missing limbs because they couldn't feel, and they would accidentally lop off limbs. Leprosy was horrible to look at. It was not just an illness. Leprosy was a sentence. A leper never experienced community, no real community anyways. They were taken from their family and friends and put into a colony They never experienced human touch because nobody could touch them. They would have to go through the town yelling unclean. But do you see what's happening right here? Do you see what's happening when he meets Jesus? It's a reversal of power. Because of the inbreaking kingdom of God, there's a reversal of power going on. It's always been up to this point, unclean contaminates what is clean. Unclean contaminates what is clean every single time. So if an unclean leper touches someone clean, that person who was clean is now unclean. But not now. Because of the inbreaking kingdom of God, what was clean touches unclean and what was unclean was made clean. It was a reversal. Jesus touches this man He could have just said, be healed. He touched him, and his skin turned fresh. It turned brand new all the way down to the nervous system. Why? Because Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God, and in the kingdom of God, Adam and Eve never had leprosy. In the garden, isn't it starting to look maybe like the garden a little bit? In the garden, there was none of this, and Jesus is restoring everything back to the way it was. There were no skin diseases. There were no diseases of any kind in the garden. And then you get to chapter two. Jesus is preaching in a house that's very, very full and packed with people. And he's proclaiming and he's teaching and some friends try to bring their other friend who is paralyzed in to see Jesus, but they can't get in. And they came in bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. They're so ingenious. These friends are persistent. And they're like, we can't get in. Go through the roof, duh. And so they start tearing away the roof of this house. And so people that are all packed in, and Jesus is like just preaching away, doing his thing, and all of a sudden, dirt starts hitting some people. They look up, and the light pierces through. And then like four heads pop down, like, where is he? There he is right there. And they lower a friend down, like just like, I don't think they plopped him. I think it was pretty slow. So it's like this slow dramatic thing and he's going down he's coming down and plop on the ground and they're like high-fiving each other and all this other stuff and Jesus looks at him he looks up at these friends and he sees the faith of his friends and he says this he said to the paralytic son your sins are forgiven now if you're in that room you're probably going oh my gosh how insensitive how uncaring like really sins are forgiven like he's paralyzed like, if you can do anything, you think you start dealing with the fact that this man has, has in his whole life been, his life full of suffering, has gone through things that, and been, and, and been a, 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 kind of his whole life a victim of things out of his control. Do something about that. Why in the world would you say your sins are forgiven? That's so rude. Hail his immediate needs. And we always think that way. When we think about serving people, We always think of immediate needs, and Jesus always goes to the deeper need. Jesus knows that the problem humanity has has never really been our suffering, it's been our sin. And that might be a very unpopular thing to say, and suffering is real, and God deals with suffering and mobilizes his church to deal with suffering. But what lies at the heart of the gospel is our need for forgiveness. And so Jesus looks at this 
paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven. But what's even wonderful about that is that forgiveness is a form of healing. It removes the burden that can crush you. Forgiveness can even remove the burden that can cripple you. It can be the release of a deep down, quiet, secret horror of personal guilt and shame, which can literally paralyze you. We have, we've have had a lot of people today come up to the prayer team and to leaders and community group leaders and all this stuff in the church just saying, just confessing. Because there's some things I know that cripple us and we need to know that God forgives us. And you might be thinking, yeah, okay, God can forgive a lot of things but not this thing. Jesus looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven. Well, he ends up healing the guy if you know the rest of the story. And he does it in a very great, dramatic way. Because everyone looks at him and is like, who are you to forgive sins? You're not God. And the ironic thing is he can read their, heart, their mind. And he's like, I can hear you. <laughs> like thinking. So I think I'm like, maybe, am, maybe. And then he heals him. He goes, What's, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because who knows that? And he goes, just to show you that I can forgive sin. Son, take up your mat and walk. And he grabs his mat. And the crowd, they wouldn't let him in, but they let him out. Like, everybody just goes, get, get out of this guy's way. And they let him out, and he walks out. Jesus heals. The reason why is because the inbreaking kingdom of God means that bones grow, that people that are paralyzed can walk. Now, you might be thinking, does that happen today? And the answer is absolutely. God can still heal. God can still restore physically. God can heal emotionally. God can heal spiritually. I think this church needs maybe just to ask God for greater faith. I know that I've been asking that for this church. I believe that God can. Does he always? No. You know how I know that? The, the, the scripture that we read in Mark chapter one, there was this juxtaposition. I don't know if you caught it. It said when John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of God. You're like, if Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, why is this his boy arrested and would be beheaded? Because we believe in a kingdom that's now but not yet. We believe that God's kingdom is breaking in and we believe this world is still very much this world. We believe that death is still very much a part of the reality of this world. But God is breaking in. He is healing. He is setting right. He's healing physically, emotionally, spiritually. God is. And the way that God is doing that, you have to believe, is through us. The way that God is bringing this about, sometimes we have this very, very gross view of our jobs. You might have a hard time figuring out how you are an artist and a Christian, a Christian artist or an artist that's a Christian, you have a hard time doing that. Or I'm in finance and I'm a Christian, I have a hard time doing The reason why is we, we tend to think of God as like our personal like saviors, our like little like personal saviors and we do like a, a, a savior audition and we kind of choose Jesus as our savior. Jesus, I've, I've, I've played the, I've looked around. You're like the best one out there right now. So I'm gonna choose you as my savior. And so that kind of like diminishes Christ. It just like makes him small. But when you think of this, the kingdom of God breaking in, Jesus owns every bit of technology. Jesus owns every bit of, of, of the financial world. Jesus owns it all, and he's reconciling it all to himself. It all belongs to him. We can see our jobs in finance different. 
We see our jobs in art different. We see our jobs in all these different places different because it all belongs to Christ. It's all his, and he's redeeming all of it, the entire world. The kingdom of God is breaking in. Now, in the Gospels, every single Gospel account, demons dominate people. And illnesses make them less than whole. And nature threatens to destroy. And humans oppress other humans. Every single gospel you read, this is the case. Demons are always dominating people. Illnesses are always keeping people from some sort of wonderful created order. Nature threatens to destroy. Storms crash over the boat. Storms threaten to destroy. And humans are oppressing other humans. And what the inbreaking kingdom of God does is challenge every other claim to power, everything that comes against the loving rule of God, everything that keeps people in bondage, everything that keeps people from created order. The kingdom of God breaks in and challenges everything, every single thing. And so when you read Mark, when you read Matthew and Luke and John, when you read these gospels, you're seeing Jesus breaking in with the kingdom of God, setting all these things right. The inbreaking kingdom of God brings freedom. Leslie Newbegin, a noted missiologist, said, Jesus was manifest, actually wrote this, Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil, not to submit to them. His whole ministry is portrayed in the Gospels as a mighty onslaught on the works of the devil, whether these took the form of sickness and demon possession among the people or of hypocrisy, cruelty, and hard-heartedness among rulers. And his whole ministry is interpreted as the inbreaking in of the reign of God into the life of the world to release those whom Satan has bound. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, the inbreaking of God was present in Jesus. So what does this mean? What does this mean? If, if this was Jesus' message, what does this mean? This is, this is what it means. Jesus is not just your personal Savior. Jesus is not just your personal Savior. He's way more than that. He's the King bringing the kingdom. He's the Savior King bringing in the shalom of God. We cannot make Jesus smaller than he is. I'm going to read a quote that I came across last night. Um, by Michael Horton. It might offend you, but it's supposed to, so let me read it. I love it. It says, the Roman Empire was a melting pot of churches and religions. However, whatever varied religions and spiritualities it tolerated, Rome insisted that they contribute to the civil religion that included the cult of the emperor. God could have, have, God could have his heaven or the inner soul or whatever, but Caesar was lord of the earth. The early Christians were not fed to wild beasts or dipped in wax and set ablaze as lamps in Nero's garden because they thought Jesus was a helpful life coach or a role model, but because they witnessed to him as the only Lord and Savior of the world. Jesus Christ doesn't just live in the private hearts of individuals as a source of an inner peace. He is the creator, ruler, redeemer, and judge of all the earth, and now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. All idols are shams. All power and authority, not only in heaven but on earth, is Christ's, and he has cast Satan out of the heavenly sanctuary where he prosecuted the saints night and day. And now having bound the strong man, he is looting his house on earth, taking back what is rightfully belongs to him. That is who Jesus is. You don't make Jesus your savior. Jesus is the savior. He is. We don't go, I think I'll make him my savior. 
If you make him your savior or not, doesn't change him being a savior. If you make him Lord or not, doesn't, doesn't affect him as Lord. If you make him God or not, doesn't affect him as God. He is that. And what do we do? What did Jesus say? Repent and get a part of this program. Jesus is there and he's set above everything else. And what we do, we don't go, okay, I think I'll choose you to be my, he is. He is the savior. And the reason why that should, I think that kind of does offend us to some degree, and I think it's supposed to, is that it offended the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated Jesus. The Pharisees were the most culturally religious, self-righteous, the, some of the most educated, powerful people alive in, in the time of, uh, in that time in Jewish history. And what, the reason why they were offended by Jesus is because Jesus looked the Pharisees in the eyes and said, you're not okay. You're not okay. I, I, I kind of I want, I want you to hear that. I want you to, I want to look at you and, and say that to you, that you're not okay. And I know that might offend some sort of, you know, that self-sufficiency that we have. But we're not okay. I mean, you might have a, a great career and job and all these things going for you, but you're not okay. You need a ruler and you're horrible at it. You need a savior and it's not your job or your romantic partner or your money or your kids. You need a teacher to lead you to God and because, because you and I are like the blind leading the blind, we need Jesus. And all of our salvation, all of our truth, everything is found in union with Christ. Everything. Everything. All healing is setting right. Peace, truth are found in union with Christ. This is why you and I, this is why we as a church practice communion every Sunday. We take communion every Sunday. We line up as a community every single Sunday and we take communion. We get in line as a community and we take communion. For the very word communion denotes oneness, unity, closeness, and relationship. What the church is saying every single week for centuries is that we don't find righteousness in ourselves. We don't find peace within us. We can't find the healing we really need outside of union with Christ. And so we get in line and we take the bread in the cup. And we take it in. We ingest it. We say that we are one with the reality that Jesus has accomplished everything. He has assumed our flesh. He has fulfilled all righteousness in our place and has bore the judgment for every one of our sins as our substitute. And he has been raised as the first fruits of a whole harvest, beginning the resurrection from the dead. There is no more redeeming work to be done, for Christ has done it all. And what we do every single week in communion is say yes and amen to that as a church. Yes. We say yes as we individually stand before the bread broken, a picture, a symbol of Christ's body broken for us. The cup, a picture of his blood blood poured out for us for our sins and we take the bread and we dip it in the cup and when we take it in we are saying I believe the truth and I believe this truth and thank you Jesus for redeeming me thank you for saving me thank you for healing me forgiving me and thank you for reconciling all the world to yourself thank you for the kingdom of God breaking in so let's do that as a church Let's respond to God. Let's, retake, let's take communion. Let's ask God to do wonderful things in our midst. Let's ask God, God, would you please empower us as a church to do this? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would, 
that you would make us able ministers of the gospel. God, I pray that we would stop making you so small in our hearts and our minds to think that you are our own little savior that we kind of put in our pocket and we, we like take you to work. God, you are the Lord. This whole universe is yours. And you're breaking in right now. You're setting things right. And Lord, I have, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe that you want to set things right, that you want to forgive, that you want to heal emotionally and physically and spiritually. I believe that by you moving up in this city, we can start seeing the kingdom of God manifested in San Francisco. Would you save tonight? Would you restore? Would you make whole as we worship you? In Jesus' name, amen.